Ata Maria, welcome to First Up. This is Thrapa, that is Wednesday, the 26th of October. Kwanathan Rarari Aho, coming up, COVID cases rise, along with the number of different strains that's here in New Zealand. Professor Michael Baker is with us live. Britain's new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, or Mr October, as the Daily Star has already dubbed him, meets King Charles and moves into number 10. The Australian Government unveils its federal budget and a landmark court decision finds in favour of four Wellington ride-sharing drivers. In my view, this is the kind of thing that should really kind of make them sit up and listen and reflect on what they're doing. They're unlawfully engaging workers as contractors when they should be employing them. Kia ora to you all. Welcome to First Up. I'm Nathan Rarere. And let's start in Australia this morning. The federal budget has been announced what does that all mean? Well, we go to Brisbane to find out, and it's Pam Corkery that we get to say good morning to. Morena, Pam. Morena, and all the arrows are pointing down. Oh. Yeah, or most of them. I mean, there's good stuff coming, but it won't kick in for a few years. So the bad news first. Okay. Households will be hit by a 56% surge in energy bills. 56%? Rotten. Yes. Wow. This is over the next um, 12 months, but they think it'll kick in really quickly. No federal payments to help. Um, a potential spike in unemployment to 5%, which is up from 2.5 or 3.5 at the moment. And the kind of good news, here's the good news, is a pledge to build 1 million homes over the five years from 2024 to 2029. Uh, but the government will be putting what amounts to a pittance into this, $35 million, relying on super and fund companies to invest and the individual states to cough up. Well, the individual states don't agree with each other ever. And, you know, there's so much homelessness starting in 2024. It's not going to fizz anyone. Um, nearly five bill on childcare, which is great, preschool. But there's a shortage of more than 30,000 workers. Um, and there's been revenue gains, but they've been like $70 billion. I just do these figures quickly, but that's from coal, you know, global mm. warming. But the borrowings will surpass 1.2 trillion by June 2024. There's no forecast at, at all for when the forecast will be in surplus. So there you go. The debt will be about 47% of economic output. That's quite stunning because it's quite it often painted as, oh, it's so much easier over there. Anyone gets paid tons and it's all good and easy life. I tell you, my sister, this is it. I'm doing all this sister thing at the moment, but, um, or family thing, but she's just come back from a holiday with family in New Zealand, and she said the groceries are so much cheaper than here. Really? And that, yeah, and that wasn't the case, you know, a few years ago, but she said, no, a lot cheaper apart from um, blueberries, uh, which were $14, <laughs> and she said, no way, Jose. So yes. we had that intellectual discussion. Yeah, yeah no, another of our correspondents was uh, back in New Zealand recently, and I caught up with him for lunch, and he was like, I can't believe how cheap it is to eat out here. I was like, really? So it's yeah. expensive everywhere. Now let's, let's um, uh, get into a personality here. This Greens senator... Tell me about Lydia Thorpe and uh, what's this this relationship uh, problem here that they're talking about? Well, I just say she's hard to love. You know, she'll come in to do swear the oath and that, and she's doing it, got the fist in the air, and and she just keeps rewording it. It'd be fine if she had achieved anything, but she's. <laughs> 
First Nations, and she's just unlikable. Anyhow, it turns out she's been in a relationship with former, she's in a sort of girlfriend-boyfriend thing, with former Rebels bikey um, President Dean Martin, that's his name. I think he's a Kiwi. I was going to go, that's Dusty's dad. The um, Dusty Martin is a Aussie, Aussie rules player. Yes, that's right. And okay. His, his, his brother Shane, also with the Rebels, was deported to New Zealand. Oh. Oh, so back to Senator Thorpe, who says she's still friends with Martin after they got over the beast with two backs. And um, she would never, ever tell him what happened at the Law Enforcement Committee. She, that's, you see, well, mm. he's a... Yeah, an established criminal, that's not a good look, is it? So anyhow, she said they work together now on furthering the rights of First Nation people. Do they, though? Yeah. Yeah, do they, though? You're right. I mean, I'm not going to curse all gangsters because there are some good ones out there who aren't actually criminals. They're just for fellowship and that. Hmm. But really, I oh, will sit here, I'm a former leader, and we'll, um, we'll talk about the rights of First Nation people. Yeah, through that. And we won't, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a virgin who's never had a drink, you know. <laughs> uh, let's, let's move on. Now, this is interesting too. Obviously, this was quite big news uh, recently there. The, the jury in the trial of a man charged with the rape of Brittany Higgins. So that's been given more time to come to a decision. That is interesting to me. Why do they need more time? Now, this was the case, of course, where um, Brittany Higgins says she was raped by a a fellow parliamentary political staffer in a cabinet minister's um, office. Um, Now, And she is incredibly famous here. She's spoken at many protests and given interviews about what she says happened, Um, but the jury cannot, they've got to reach a unanimous verdict, and after four days, they said to the judge, can we go home? And she said, yes. She said, hit the gym, walk the dog, whatever. There is no time expectation at all. Take all the time you need. Mm. Well, mm. Uh, as long as they do and they come to the, the right decision, I guess, is it? And they've I got all the no information. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Pam, thank you so much for your time. Some really surprising news there. Pam Corkery uh, with us from Brisbane. And it's always a pleasure to kick the show off uh, with her every week on a Wednesday. Well, Liz Truss has passed the baton to new UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Ms. Truss formally resigned as Prime Minister in a meeting with King Charles. So her successor was next in line to see the new monarch at Buckingham Palace, and that was only a few hours ago. The BBC's Ione Wells has more. The world's eyes and ears, and Liz Truss's loyal aides, crowded here again just weeks after they gathered to hear a very different speech. A chapter opened that day, reflected on today. This government has acted urgently and decisively on the side of hard-working families and businesses. We reversed the national insurance increase. We helped millions of households with their energy bills and helped thousands of businesses avoid bankruptcy. But amid her wins, a hint at her failures. As the Roman philosopher Seneca wrote, it's not because things are difficult that we do not dare. It's because we do not dare that they are difficult. Critics argue it was her very dare to cut taxes and borrow so greatly that led to such economic difficulties. She left with the message that she still stands by her plans for growing the economy. 
It means lower taxes so people can keep more of the money that they earn. Liz Truss's departure from number 10 for the last time as Prime Minister leaves Rishi Sunak with tough challenges in the driving seat. He was clear in the summer he won't follow her plan to cut taxes until inflation is down. After officially being appointed Prime Minister today by the King, he said he'd been elected to fix the mistakes made by Liz Truss. I admired her restlessness to create change. But some mistakes were made. Not born of ill will or bad intentions. Quite the opposite, in fact. But mistakes nonetheless. And I have been elected as leader of my party and your Prime Minister, in part, to fix them. And that work begins immediately. He didn't shy away from highlighting mistakes that led to Boris Johnson's resignation either, who claimed this week it was his mandate in the 2019 election that would have placed him well to win another. This government will have integrity, professionalism and accountability at every level. Trust is earned and I will earn yours. I will always be grateful to Boris Johnson for his incredible achievements as Prime Minister and I treasure his warmth and generosity of spirit. And I know he would agree that the mandate my party earned in 2019 is not the sole property of any one individual. It is a mandate that belongs to and unites all of us. Rishi Sunak also said that he wants to unite his party. But why does that matter when, as he said, people are struggling with economic hardship right now? Well, as Liz Truss found out the hard way, it's very difficult to govern effectively and pass policies if you can't get your party to back you. That starts today, as he will begin having to decide who stays and who goes from the top jobs in government. He'll want to show he can bring together different wings of the party, those loyal to him and those who backed his rivals, while avoiding the rifts that led to policy clashes at the very top of government under Liz Truss. Meaning, just weeks into their jobs, Liz Truss may soon not be the only one moving out. Ione Wells reporting there from London, and we will have more from the UK with Henry Riley just before six. At a quarter past five, and Nathan Rarere, you are listening to First Up here at RNZ National. We'll go to the Middle East for this morning, where Alex Beard stands by. Kia ora, Alex. Hey, Alex. Um, now, obviously, obviously, Ukraine uh, not in the Middle East, but um, Iran supplying Russia with drones. We hear. What is the latest there? Yeah, so the White House has come out and said that Iran has been deploying not just drones, but oh, not. Iran hasn't been deploying drones, to be fair, but Iran, um, Iranian-made drones have been being used by Russia in Ukraine. But as well as that, apparently Iran, they allege, has been sending military experts to Russian-occupied Crimea to help them launch drone attacks on Kiev. Um, we've seen in the last couple of weeks um, pretty huge attacks throughout Ukraine, and especially those so-called kamikaze drones that hover in front of buildings for 
they, you know, armed with warheads before they hit buildings. So allegedly these have been made in Iran. But Iran has come back and said, hey, we're not doing this. And if we find out that this is what's happening with our Iranian-made drones, we will not remain, quote, indifferent. Um, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has also come out and said that Russia has ordered around 2,000 drones from Iran, the same kind that are being used in those attacks. As I said, Iran has said, no, we're not doing this. But Iran and Russia have been cozying up to one another. Um, Since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, Russia has been looking for friends and allies abroad, which have been increasingly drying up. But Iran has been one of those fairly large countries which refuses um, to... Turn away from Russia. Um, President uh, Vladimir Putin has met with leaders in Iran. So, you know, it's not outside the realms of possibility that indeed Iranian-made drones are being used in Ukraine. But as I said, Iran says that's not happening. That's so weird to me because I thought Russia was this huge, you know, mega power. Why are they, you know, having to buy stuff off other nations for war? That that seems very odd to me. Let's go. Um, this is interesting here. Huge crowds in Sudan and they're demanding an end to military rule there. Is that quite brave? Yeah. So it's been about a year since the military took over in Sudan. And basically, um, up until I think it was 2019, there had been um, Omar al-Bashir had been the president in Sudan for around 30 years, and there was there were widespread protests, and he was overthrown, and then a pretty fragile civilian government um, popped up in Sudan, and then that was overthrown by the military, and the military had promised that there would be a transition to civilian rule, but that simply just hasn't happened. And so protesters have been coming out for weeks and weeks on end. Security forces often quite violent in the way they've been cracking down on these protesters. Around 118 people killed um, since uh, since um, a couple of months ago. So it's been pretty nasty up until now. And for instance, the, the military junta have blocked internet access nationwide as this latest round of protests was was due to get underway, this one-year anniversary protest. Um, we haven't seen so much violence, but we've been seeing pictures coming out of Sudan uh, in terms of what we can get, because obviously the internet's been shut down, of, of burning tyres, of thousands of people in the street, obviously hoping that civilian rule can be brought back to Sudan. It'll be interesting to see if these protests have any real-life impact, though, on turning the military around in terms of what they've been pursuing so far. All right, enough militariness and horribleness. Uh, let's do something different. Tell me about this, and if you tell the audience too, it's gorgeous, this fantastic discovery in Iraq. Yeah, so as many people at home will know, Iraq is, is the home of Mesopotamia, the cradle of civilization. We often refer to it as. And a bunch of archaeologists have been working on a an ancient gate in the city of Nineveh in, in an area that we will often refer to in the news of Mosul. Um, which came under ISIL, Islamic State rule, for a while. Now, unfortunately, Islamic State, when they took over this part of Iraq, actually went in and bulldozed um, this ancient city gate. And so an archaeological team since that city was liberated have been in there restoring the gate, trying to trying to piece together all the small pieces to try and make it what it once was. But while they've been doing this, they've actually uncovered even more archaeological material. So they've found these beautiful rock carvings 
underneath the, the soil layer that dates to uh, around 2,700 years ago. And these are quite beautiful. If anyone has access to the internet, I'm sure you do. Um, Google them. Have a look. Some very intricate, fine carvings that look like once they've cleaned, been cleaned up, honestly, look like they've only just been done. And it's a really, I don't think, some, I, think I think something quite beautiful to come out of the destruction that that region has seen under its ISIL control. Now, ISIL went around and destroyed a number of archaeological sites across Syria, across, uh, across Iraq. So this is just, you know, uh, finally something good coming out of the painstaking effort to restore what was lost. Yeah, hell of a tiling job. Thank you very much, Alex Beard. This week on Trade Me, you can be the first in the country with a full set of whatever it is that New World's promoting this Christmas. Uh, also, if you've ever wanted Winston Peters as a neighbour, this week's property listing in Auckland St Mary's Bay will appeal. Man of the people. But first, producer Jeremy Parkinson talks with Millie Sylvester from Trade Me about an opportunity to meet Auckland Zoo's latest edition. On the 24th of September, the zoo's family grew a little bit bigger with the arrival of Amali. So that's the newest addition to the family. And apparently Amali was a whopping 65 kgs at birth. And this auction offers you the chance to go and meet the female calf and her whanau, which is just a really cool experience. They'll give you a guided tour. They'll tell you all about the zookeeper's mahi and everything that goes into it. And you get to give the rhinos a good back scratch at the end too. So a very cool auction up for grabs at the moment and at the moment the current bid is four and a half thousand dollars so hopefully that will go a wee way towards the conservation efforts that the Auckland Zoo do. Wouldn't that be a thing to win Uh, and what's the current bid on that one because I'd imagine it's going to go for quite some oh look at that that's a heck of a lot and it's still got a few days to go. Yeah, four and a half thousand dollars at the moment, and this one closes on Friday at eight pm. So it's had fourteen thousand views. So lots of people keeping an eye on this one. It'd be really interesting, yeah, to see see those bids climb. Oh well, that's really that is really cool. And uh, for for those who aren't quite into rhinoceroses and are looking for a, one of the flashiest houses in Auckland, if you, if if you, non-Aucklanders don't know St Mary's Bay, it's it's as you're heading south over the Harbour Bridge, just after the Harbour Bridge, on the right, that's St Mary's Bay. And you can be one of Winston Peters' neighbours if you buy this house. And this is an amazing mix of both old, early 20th century and new, which kind of works. It does kind of work. And so if you can imagine a typical white Auckland villa, obviously very, very large, but what has been done to this property, which seems to work because when I say it out loud, it probably sounds a bit random, but they have an extension that's been added that's completely ironclad. So it is really just this blend of, you know, heritage and contemporary coming together. The property has, as you can imagine, being in St Mary's Bay, just these to die for panoramic views across the water of the Harbour Bridge. And of course, a lot of the property has, you know, these massive floor to ceiling windows so that you can make the most of that stunning view. So we're talking seven bedrooms and it's just an absolute masterpiece. There's like stained glass windows. There's a bit of art deco ceiling detail in there with, of course, beautiful chandeliers because what mansion would, wouldn't be complete without a chandelier or two. And of course, a swimming pool and I guess some guest accommodation. What's really interesting about this one is it's a mortgagee sale. It will be sold by tender uh, on the 8th of November. So you've got two weeks to check out this really once-in-a-lifetime property. But, yeah, so have a good look at the photos because you don't get to see inside of houses like this very often. 
You certainly don't. And, you know, this has been on site for just over a week and it's had 31,000 views. So clearly a lot of Kiwi are kind of keen to, to check out this little piece of paradise. Very, Yeah, a very interesting property here. And finally today, every year the big supermarket companies try and get you in to do their thing around Christmas time and they put out these promotions. This time New World has got a bit of a secret promotion going on. Looks to me like glasses... I might be wrong, but up for grabs on Trade Me this week is the first booklet of stickers for New World's new promotion. Tell us what you can about this. This is so interesting. So every single time, you know, New World release one of their big sticker promotions, the stickers always find their way to Trade Me and people sell them off or they sell whatever the promotion items are because, you know, often they sell out and and Kiwi really want to get their hands on them. So we've kind of seen, I guess, this do a full turn this year because New World have launched their sticker promotion with a full complete sticker book selling it on site. So yes, as you said, they still haven't actually unveiled what the promotion is but you might be able to get a few clues if you check out the listing and take a look at at what's wrapped up there i mean i I think i might have a pretty good idea so there's 29 full new world sticker booklets listed on site and the promo you know hasn't even been released in store yet so you would be the first person in new zealand to get your hands on these and what a great claim to fame that would be around the barbecue this summer as I said, yep, the booklets are already filled. You'll be able to redeem the six sets of six styles of whatever they might be releasing, which is, you know, I guess just a, a really cool way because Kiwis just really, really love these sticker promotions. They get a little bit obsessed with collecting them all. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Half past five. This is the day of our life we've agreed to call the 26th of October. And we're going to say happy birthday to some people. So with us here, Seth MacFarlane, the creator of Family Guy, very, very funny comedian, 49 years old today. It is happy birthday to Hillary Clinton. Apparently had some emails or something, I don't know, I didn't really look into it. Uh, she's 75 years old today. And happy 76th birthday to Jacqueline Smith, the greatest of Charlie's Angels. I'm sure everyone agrees on that. On this day in 1863, the Football Association formed in England, so they came in, standardised the rules of association football, and uh, split with rugby on this day in 1863. On this day in 1901, the first ever recorded use of a getaway car uh, occurs in Paris, and I thought, come on, how fast can it be? But it's quite fast, actually. It went 60 miles per hour, which was a, a pretty quick car for those days. On this day in 1942, here in New Zealand, the Women Jurors Act allowed women to sit on juries, and um, New Zealand's first female juror was Elaine Kingsford. Yeah, she sat on a jury in 1943. Oh, tune. This day in 1972, people said, what is this? This is incredible. And people went, that's Stevie Wonder and the song's called Superstition. And it remains incredible to this day. And on this day in 1984, a film came out called The Terminator. It featured Arnold Schwarzenegger. It was made for 6.4 million, made 78.3. You nearly got Sylvester Stallone and Mel Gibson as the role of Terminator. And they went, nah, don't want it. The studio suggested a fellow by the name of O.J. Simpson. But the director did not feel that Simpson at the time would be a believable as a killer. Uh, That all happened on this day, the 26th of October.
Lloyd saying 1972 for the rest of the morning. Joining us now is um, the man running our business team this morning. It's Ananzaki. Kia ora, sir. How are you? Morena, very well. How are you? I'm good. Tell me about this. the dollars needed to decarbonise the economy by the year 2030. Morena, yes, uh, it's uh, $42 billion is the amount needed to invest uh, in new electricity generation, uh, distribution, storage and other technologies. Uh, so the big four power generators in New Zealand, so that's Contact, Genesis, Meridian and Mercury. And some lines companies as well, they got together and commissioned a report uh, from a group of consultants uh, to look at future options. And the report said moving the country to 98% renewable energy by 2030 uh, would deliver the emissions cuts uh, faster than the proposals by the Climate Change Commission. So it's a good thing for the economy and our climate targets. And yeah, $42 billion is how much is needed for it. So this report done by a group called Boston Consulting, uh, they're saying that uh, deep and rapid decarbonisation at the lowest cost to us consumers uh, relies on quick action uh, around renewables. Now, uh, what would that mean? Uh, we need to overbuild on renewable energy. Uh, there needs to be uh, greater use of battery storage, uh, obviously very important if we're going to rely on things like solar and uh, some residual use of coal and gas uh, still. You know, we often hear about that, you know, how that'll still be needed for dry or high load times. So of this $42 billion, the biggest chunk, uh, about half, is going to distribution improvements and a quarter towards generation. So that really shows where the improvement is needed. Yeah, it does. And that's the good old thing, isn't it, with the renewables? Uh, I think if we look at the UK, though, boy, uh, I think they wish they had more. And Anne, thank you very much for your time. You can also hear, too, uh, from the business team this morning about apparently a cheesy pizza row over um, pizza toppings tax in India. And uh, you can hear more from the uh, business team, like I said, on Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7. So if you take your New Zealand dollar shopping today, this is what it will buy you. 57.77 US cents, 90.09 Australian cents, 57.84 euro cents, 50.21 British pence, 4.2 yuan and 85.17 Japanese yen. We're coming up to 25 to 6 here at uh, First Up on RNZ National and in a landmark decision that challenges you know, this, this new gig economy as they call it, a court has ruled that four Wellington Uber drivers are employees of the rideshare giant. So yesterday, a chief employment court judge determined that the drivers are not independent contractors, but in an employment relationship and said that the decision may have a broader impact. Uber, of course, says it's going to appeal the decision, but the unions behind the case say it's put gig economy companies on notice that they can no longer operate in this way. Our producer, Matthew Tunison, went for a ride. Andrew Ferguson has been driving for Uber since 2016, one of about 7,000 Uber drivers who could be affected by yesterday's judgment. However, it could have implications not just for Uber, but for the whole gig economy. But ultimately, with Uber, Ola and Didi, I won't lie, it's all the same slave, different master. They all, it's, it's all the same, really. Yeah. And I'm hoping that the judgment applies to all... 
applies to you know, all ride-share companies. Uber had claimed that its drivers were self-employed contractors and therefore not entitled to basic employment rights and protections, including the minimum wage, guaranteed hours, holiday pay, sick leave and KiwiSaver contributions. For some drivers, this means that if they're sick or can't work, they're unable to pay the bills. So they'll still go out to work because we're, we're contractors. Mm. So if you don't work, you don't get paid. And so there, there is that, that pressure to, to go out and earn. Andrew takes home 72% of what he earns through Uber, with the company getting 25% and the rest tax. Other rideshare companies take less from their drivers. I asked him, who's his boss? That's such a tricky question. Like, <laughs> like, there's, like there's, there's aspects of, of, of this work in which I'm the boss and aspects that are decided by this algorithm. So partly myself and mostly this algorithm. But Chief Employment Court Judge Christina Inglis found that the four plaintiff drivers were in an employment relationship with Uber. The judge noted that this only applied to the four drivers in the case. However, she said it may well have broader impact, particularly where there is apparent uniformity in the way in which the companies operate. The four drivers were supported by the First Union and ETSU, who were ecstatic yesterday. First Union Strategic Project Coordinator Anita Rossentrater says the implications are massive. Obviously the four drivers have been named employees and that sort of happens in the eyes of the law on the spot. But the judge has made a point of saying in her judgment that the, there are broader implications because of the uniformity of the, the system that Uber drivers are working within. So essentially all Uber drivers are working within the same system. Therefore, the reality of their relationship with Uber, Uber is identical to that of the four drivers. The judgment also raises the matter of back pay and other entitlements going back years. And sort of beyond that, I guess, we've got a number of different gig companies now that are utilising the same model. Um, and in my view, this is the kind of thing that um, should really kind of make them sit up and, and listen and reflect on what they're doing. Um, they're unlawfully engaging workers as contractors when they should be employing them. Um, and then even kind of wider than that is this problem of misclassification in general. You know, it's happening in a lot of different industries. It's really prevalent in construction um, and other parts of transport and even care work now. Um, and this is an issue that the government has been looking at as well. Um, and I really hope that this means some kind of fundamental structural change. In a statement, Uber said it's disappointed with the decision and will be appealing. It said gig workers play an important role and drivers consistently say that they value the flexibility the type of work offers. The statement also notes that the employment court's decision only applies to four individuals. However, Anita Rossentrater from First Union thinks Uber will have a hard time arguing that it doesn't apply to all its drivers. So the decision has been made about these four and what we need to do now is on behalf of other drivers who weren't involved in the case directly, um, approach Uber and try and enforce their rights and entitlements, try and get that back pay for them. It's not a requirement for us to go and get a declaration for them separately. But then Uber, Uber can, of course, argue that they don't want to give those things, and then it becomes a question of, well, what's the status of the employee? But we can still proceed through the court system on behalf of those workers, um, and that's what we're going to be doing.
It is 22.6. I'm Nathan Rarity here at First Up on RNZ National. So still to come, we're going to talk about these rising COVID cases, which even seems to have forgotten, but there is a ton of them that have hit the country. Professor Michael Baker is with us, and also we'll find out uh, from our friend Henry Riley in the UK about Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's first day and who he's putting together on his team. The professionals of the RNZ ship, uh, the Morning Report team, it's Marnie Dunlop who's with me right now to talk about what's happening on the show. Kia ora, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Yeah, pretty good. Good, pretty good. Pretty Just good. Getting, I'm getting used to these early mornings. <laughs> wow. Oh, they'll get you. <laughs> They'll it's great though. I really, I think it's a great time to be awake. I think it's pretty. It's pretty <laughs> That's beautiful. what we all tell ourselves. Everyone exactly. who's awake now does that too. No, you're missing the best time you're, of the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I've said that about five times. <laughs> it's been one day. <laughs> yep. Well, it's good that you're starting to believe it. That's yeah. Nice. yeah. Hey, what do you what do you got happening this morning on the show? Hey, look, obviously health uh, with the the task force making a myriad of recommendations yesterday. So we speak to a plethora of people in the industry. We go to the opposition. Uh, we speak to GPs on the ground. We talk to um, yeah many people within the sector to you know nut out what actually does need to be done. So that'll there'll be some um, some robust discussion on that co-papa. Uh, we're also obviously Wednesday, so that means uh, we have Christopher Luxon on the show. So we'll be able to have a chat to him about obviously Hamilton West and uh, the diversity within the caucus and how they might attract. Um, diverse candidates going into election year next yeah. year. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and also we, we go to Laneway because I don't know if you know, I've never actually been to Laneway. So Laneway is, is the groovy music festival, so everybody, groovy. with band names that you look at and you go, is that a name or is that, a, what is what is rusted, weird, what is rusted leg? Oh, it's a band, you know, that sort of thing. weird acronyms yeah. or Instagram handles that I've never heard of. Yes. And this... And the, the laneway lineup when it was announced, I was like, okay, I, I, I've officially made that point in my life where I no longer care about festivals. Oh, no. um, I mean, not care about them. I guess um, I, they're not. I'm like, where's Catch a Fire? You know. <laughs> <laughs> I found myself once. I left the big day out early. I went, oh, skinny, but tired. Standing up, I might get a ride home. That was what I knew. Yeah, I, that's why I love Romad. It's all over by midnight, and then you're in bed <laughs> with a cup of tea. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we talk about the, the location changing. They've tried. Tra- tra- from Albert Park to uh, Western Springs, and that's mm. caused a bit of uh, controversy with among, among among fans. Yeah, people that like to you know drink craft beer and throw axes on dates. You know those ones, those people. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Marnie. Yeah, thank you. There Cheers. you go. They're up after six. Well, look. Um, let's speak a bit of health here. Uh, we go to the United States now, where health officials are warning of a triple virus threat as winter approaches over there. So COVID and the flu combined with the respiratory virus RSV could all be around the corner. CNN's Brian Todd reports from Children's National Hospital in Washington. A baby with trouble breathing. It's why this mom in Columbus, Ohio, took her two-month-old to the hospital. He just declined super rapidly. Doctors across the country are warning of a triple threat, the big three of viruses, one doctor calls them. 
certainly we know all about uh, COVID. We certainly know about influenza, but RSV, again, is known by every pediatrician because it fills up our hospitals every year. RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus, a common respiratory illness that is occasionally severe in babies and young children. Experts say RSV and the flu are both hitting earlier this year than they normally do. If you look in the southern United States, we're already starting to see flu cases um, take a really big high jump and so we're really a little bit concerned about this overlapping of all these different viruses because usually RSV comes a little bit later and then flu comes very nicely after they take their turn. The number of RSV cases in the U.S. detected by PCR tests in the second week of October was higher than any other week in the past two years according to the CDC. And across the country, about three-quarters of pediatric hospital beds are currently in use, a larger share than at any time over the past two years. Three states have more than 90% of those beds in use right now, Maine, Rhode Island, and Delaware. At this high school in Stafford County, Virginia, nearly half the student body was out at one point last week with flu-like symptoms. And after falling for months, COVID cases have recently flattened out in the U.S. I'll be honest, I think we're in for a tough several months. We're seeing high numbers of children who are getting sick, who are actually needing support to breathe, and we've seen earlier than expected seasons. RSV and the flu have similar symptoms, experts say. Runny nose, decrease in appetite, coughing, sneezing, wheezing, fever. So it's not always easy to tell which illness your child has. And it can be challenging to know if you should bring them to a hospital. Maybe they have a sniffle, a cough, congestion, but they're doing okay in the home. Or is your child really struggling or working to breathe such that they need to come see us in the hospital and in the emergency department? What about infants and newborns who can't tell their parents how they feel? What should those parents look for? Babies should not be refusing their bottle, and that's often one of the first signs we see that RSV is getting out of control in these infants as they start to refuse their bottle. You start to have trouble waking them up. The doctors we spoke to have this advice for the parents of young children on preventive measures against the flu, RSV, and COVID. Wash your hands often. Everyone should cover their mouths when they cough or sneeze. Wear masks if you have symptoms. And even though there is no vaccine for RSV, there are vaccines for the flu and COVID. You can get those for children as young as six months old, and now is an important time to get them. Uh, CNN's Brian Todd there from Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. We're actually going to uh, catch up very soon with uh, Michael Baker as we have a look at uh, some rising cases here in New Zealand. But we go back to the U.K. now where we started the programme this morning. Uh, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is uh, busily, he's been appointing his cabinet as the show has happened. And with us from London, it is Henry Riley. Kia ora, Henry. Helen Nathan. So tell me, who's been named to positions in Mr. Sunak's cabinet so far? So he's still appointing it. There's still a few positions to go. Um, the key things are, so we've had some people who've resigned from the government. So Jacob Rees-Mogg has resigned as business secretary. He obviously represents uh, one particular wing of the Conservative Party associated with Boris Johnson, associated with uh, Liz Truss, albeit obviously a very short tenure. Uh, Sir Robert Jenrick, who was, uh, sorry, Sir Robert Buckland, uh, who was the Welsh Secretary, formerly Justice Secretary, he's resigned as well, although he was one of those people who you felt would have been pushed out uh, as well. And so there's this new team for, for Rishi Sunak to appoint to his, uh, to, his, to his top table. He's gone for Jeremy Hunt as his Chancellor. So that is one area of continuity. So he's sticking uh, with him on Halloween on the 31st of this month. We've got our big fiscal statement. So that provided some stability for the markets and for the economic uh, situation. 
The foreign secretary also remains the same. That's James Cleverly. He was a very much a trust ally. And so that's uh, raised some eyebrows, perhaps in a good way, that it shows Rishi Sunak isn't just picking a team of people who supported him in the leadership. The Home Secretary, now this has raised both eyebrows, let's say, Suella Braverman. Now, you remember we spoke last week and she had to quit the government. She resigned slash was sacked. We still don't really know hmm. for leaking personal, for le- leaking security documents to personal address. She then had to resign from the government for security reasons. Six days later, she's now back in as the Home Secretary. So that has raised uh, many eyebrows. We see the return of Dominic Raab. He was Boris Johnson's deputy prime minister. He comes back in as the deputy prime minister. In the last few minutes, we've seen Gillian Keegan. She was a junior minister under Boris Johnson. She's been heavily promoted. She's now the education secretary. And then another key ally, Rishi Sunak, is a man called Mel Stride. He used to be in the Treasury, very senior in the Treasury, and he has now been given the role of work and pension. So it's still an ongoing situation, but it's a a pretty balanced team from a political wing of the party. It comes from both Rishi Sunak's side, Liz Truss's side, and uh, it's clear that he isn't just appointing some of his allies to the top jobs. It's always interesting, Henry, because every single leader does the whole, you know, now what I want to do is try and unite both sides. And we've seen uh, in the last 10 years that both sides retreat further and further away. Do You, uh, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, being out there, I always see him from, from my distance so far away as quite a big personality. Do you actually think that the Conservative Party will be, uh, an, will, will they play nice with each other? Or do you think that, the you know, this is there's cracks in this waiting to happen? They will play nice. It depends how long for. The Conservative Party, I mean, up until a few months ago, it was virtually unthinkable that the Conservative Party would split. It is the most successful political party on record in Europe. It's won more elections than any other party. It is quite incredible, uh, has been incredible, at masking its divisions and its differences. However, as we've seen in the last few weeks, that has not been the case. And we've seen people like Jacob Rees-Mogg. There's another lady called Nadim Zahawi, um, I'm sorry, beg your pardon, there was, we had Jacob Rees-Mogg, there's Nadine Dorries, who was the culture secretary, and hmm. um, she was very much a trust supporter. Um, she has, uh, you know, been very critical of uh, Rishi Sunak. And, um, you know, there, there's a sort of a sense here that uh, the, the, the grown-ups are back in the room, you know, as far as Conservative MPs are, are concerned. But um, I think give it a few months, and it depends how Rishi, I think people cut him some slack for a little while. But I have to say, if if the going gets tough, people like Jacob Rees-Mogg will be a real thorn uh, in the side. And by the way, Nathan, while I've got you in the last uh, few seconds, Therese Coffey, who was the deputy prime minister, has now been moved. She's now the environment secretary as well. So it's uh, it's still changing. How good is that? News as it happens with Henry Riley. Henry, thank you so <laughs> much for your time, sir, out of London. And he's always the best. He's Henry Riley. Well, as you heard me say before, COVID cases are on the rise again here in Aotearoa with over 16,000 cases reported just over the past week. Waitamata, Auckland and counties Monaco have reported almost 6,000 cases in the city alone. So there's a number of new strains that are being detected in the wastewater. Oh no. Joining us is at University of Otago's Professor Michael Baker. Kia ora, Michael. How are you? Yeah, Moruna, Nathan. Good to hear your voice again. So so tell me about this, what you've seen. I mean, you know, waves, we always talked about waves. Is this a worrying thing? Is there a third wave on its way? Yes, well, as we know, this virus doesn't stay still for very long. I mean, we've had two big waves of Omicron subvariants this year, 
and we are looking like having another one. Uh, we don't know how large it will be, but we have seen countries that are very like us uh, in terms of the experience and the immunity here, and that Singapore is now having a, a very steep third wave that looks like it will be of a similar scale to the waves that have already happened there. So that may be what we'll see here. Ugh. What do you? What can you tell us about the the new one that we're probably going to hear a bit about? BQ.1.1 variant, and is there a cooler name for it? Yes, uh, it's almost like uh, I don't know now if people even bother with um, mm. learning the names of these subvariants because now, in fact, the uh, geneticists are talking about a swarm of variants, and um, we've got you know BQ11, and then we've also got this what's called a recombinant variant, uh, XBB, and that's slightly different. Rather than evolving in a, a somewhat linear way, this is what these viruses can do. It's grabbed genetic material from two other subvariants um, that are also Omicron subvariants, of course, and it's made a new, uh, different strain. And, and that's also causing, that's what's driving the, the new wave in Singapore. So I think that may become important in New Zealand. But that and the BQ11 are really on the watch list here. Um, they've been detected in the population and in wastewater. Uh, so that means that they could well take over in the next uh, few weeks and drive this wave. But it could be another subvariant. I'm just wondering, you know, with, with summer months, and I, I think we've learnt now that, you know, being outside is good because there's a bit of distance and at least, you know, this this virus has a bit of a chance of dissipating out into the atmosphere when you are around. We're heading into the warmer months now. Is the timing, is it good for us? I mean, will the warmer warmer temperatures over the summer curb the spread of COVID? Yeah, it, it does help. But one of the problems with these um, pandemic viruses is they don't need um, any season to spread. And we saw that in the Southern Hemisphere, Omicron spread very widely over the summer months. And that's just because um, they're already very infectious. Um, so they get a bit of a boost from winter when people are indoors more, but they don't absolutely need um, uh, winter conditions to spread. Okay. Um, so is it a... Is it a good time to be having cruise ships coming in? Because, I mean, potentially cases are on the rise, borders, for, uh, borders fully open, and we've got cruise ships with people on that are sick. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, cruise ships, it is quite um, uh, slightly worrying to see them back in the harbour and knowing that I think uh, the numbers was about 130 infected people on the, on the cruise ship that's visiting us at the moment, and there may be more in the future. Um, but, no, in the scheme of things, We've got essentially an open border now. We've got something like 10,000 uh, people or more flying in every day um, because we're connected with the rest of the world. So the cruise ship contribution will probably be quite small compared with the number of cases arriving every day from overseas. Professor Baker, I'm just thinking as we've been talking, I know that, you know, I think boosters and things like that. Our our kids, they, they went through and they could get, you know, two doses of it, but there's been no such thing as a booster or something since then. Have you heard of there being some kind of booster for, for children in the world? Because I'm not really hearing this too much. And is there a chance we could get it here? Yeah, I, I think boosters can be considered for children. Uh and um, we, you know, there's also uh, availability of vaccine for children under five. Uh, so, yes, I think we could do better there. I mean, at the moment, I think one of the biggest gaps is really in adults who, who are not getting their fourth dose and some haven't even had their third dose. 
and, and so that is really a critical step, and that's still the best measure that people can take to protect themselves. And it does help against these new variants as well. And we've still got the basic essentials everyone knows, which is, you know, if you get sick, uh, stay home and get tested. That's still really important. And we've got, of course, antivirals, which are very effective mm. at reducing the severity of disease. So that's something that people should take advantage of. Yeah. Um, thank you very much for your time, as always, sir. University of Otago's Professor Michael Baker. Yeah, just I, I think we've all got quite lax on it, haven't we? And gosh, if, if you've had it, you just know it is, it's just the dumbest thing. It just stays with you for ages. And it takes, I reckon, about four or five weeks to come back from it. It's a toughie. Uh, but look, um, thank you very much for your patronage this morning. Maybe you can download the First Up podcast and play it to friends. They'll be amazed. Uh, morning Report is next with Marnie and Corin from all of us here at First Up. Have a wonderful day. We'll be back in your ears up or boom.